You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Caesar had been backed into a corner. After eight years of fighting in Gaul under Caesar's banner, you'd think you'd be used to the cold. But standing on the bank of this river in the gray light before dawn, you're not sure if you can remember ever shivering this hard. You've been here all night. The river at your feet is thick with ice and January mud. You exchange tired looks with your men. Your commander is late. It's daybreak by the time he arrives, dark circles under his eyes, his face gaunt from exhaustion. He stands with the Rubicon gleaming dully behind him in the hard light of dawn. You all gather around him. His voice rings over the wind as you've heard it ring over countless battlefields. He explains what you're all doing here, why he hauled you out of your beds and sent you marching ahead of him fast to the banks of this river. The Senate, he says, has betrayed him. It's called for his army to be stripped from him. Pompey the Great has turned on him. His longtime friend called him home to face trial on the Senate's terms. I, he says, your beloved general, I will face prosecution, condemnation, exile, or maybe death. But that isn't the worst of it. The worst is the Senate's contempt for you, the soldiers. By voting my ruin, he says, Pompey the Great and the Senate have discounted the will of the people. They don't see your noble deeds. They don't see the countless friends you left in Gaul, brave men with bright futures who gave their lives to bring wealth and glory to Rome. I see you for what you are, he says, but down in Rome, across this river, they would cast you as villains. He goes on, I've stood with you. I was forged with you in the fires of Elysia. I left friends there too. I will never let this stand, will you? 
Then he explains what you must do. Follow me, he says, and you will become outlaws. The Senate will put a price on my head, and it will put a price on yours. If you follow me, we will be beyond the pale. All of Rome will rise up against us. The punishment is death if we're caught. But this is what we must do to liberate our city from the grip of tyrants. This is what heroes do. Risk death to fight injustice. Will you follow? You cannot be hearing this. You tear your eyes away from him and glance at the faces of your men. They gaze enraptured. They lift their voices and pledge to follow. They bang sword against shield to sound their ascent. The air rings with their passion. Your heart falls. You thought you knew them. You thought you knew him. Eight years drowning in blood in Gaul, all of it following Caesar, and it has led you to the banks of this river, to the brink of betraying your homeland and everything you love. A sharp stab of betrayal cuts right through you, and it isn't from Pompey and the Senate. You didn't run at Elysia. You didn't run at Gergovia when your men were being torn limb from limb at the gates of the enemy. You held firm in the face of fire and starvation, stayed with your men and suffered with them. You punished deserters in the prescribed manner, had them beaten and stoned before their fellow soldiers. You never thought about their reasons, never dreamed one day you would join them. But this time, as your own men file over the bridge, you hang back, watch them go beyond the pale to the one place you will not follow. And then, when the time is right, when no one is watching, you run. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. At this point in our story, Julius Caesar had been in Gaul for almost a decade. When Julius Caesar takes a sabbatical, he sabbaticals hard. That is an understatement. He's still getting (laughs) sabbatical pay. Actually, I don't think he is. I think he's like robbing people's towns and shrines and stuff. Well, that's probably because you don't get paid on a sabbatical. (laughs) Oh, I just don't know how it works. I've never had a job that included a sabbatical before, obviously. Anyway, we talked about the Gallic Wars and the heroic last stand of the Gauls and their general, Vercingetorix, in the last three episodes. If you are not caught up, you need to go back and catch up because Vercingetorix does not have time for you not to be caught up with where we are in this story. Yeah, Vercingetorix does not have time for your shit. He does not have time for any shit. He doesn't. As you know, like what he did was incredible and it required getting a lot of people to be united under one cause incredibly quickly. But that is a story for the other three episodes. So go back and listen. Vercingetorix, All You Love Must Burn, parts one, two, and three. Don't forget three, guys. (laughs) That's the one with Elysia. That's important. Anyway, returning to our story, while Caesar was away, things in Rome didn't just stop because Caesar doesn't exist in a one-man show where when you cut away from where he is, the rest of the world just waits patiently. (laughs) He thinks that's the case, but that's not the case. (laughs) (laughs) He definitely thinks that way. Remember how we kept saying that Caesar's enemies in Rome were sharpening their knives, just salivating for him to come back to Rome at the end of his governorship so they could prosecute him? Now we're going to get into the specifics. It started even before Caesar went to Gaul in 58 BC. Before he left, two praetors, highly placed government officials, started inquiring into his conduct as consul, and they did not like what they found. They were pushing to have all of Caesar's actions as consul invalidated by the Senate. All of his laws and achievements would be undone. Caesar had to appear before the Senate himself and defend his actions. But the Senate failed to agree about the extent of his crimes. They spent three days in what Suetonius calls fruitless wrangling. Eventually, Caesar threw his hands up in the air and was like, whatever, I don't know. Let me know what you decide. I cannot stick around for all this fruitless wrangling. I got shit to do. Can we just stop for a minute and 
just like give a nice shout out to sassy, sassy Suetonius here. Thank you, Suetonius, for bringing the sass. <laughs> anyway, so Caesar was just like, fuck this shit. And he went off to Gaul. One of his underlings during his consulship was then immediately brought up on several charges as a prelude to impeaching Caesar. While Caesar was governor of Gaul, he was immune to prosecution. But as soon as his governorship was over, he was fair game for prosecutors, and a lot of people wanted to make sure Caesar got prosecuted. There were three main reasons why. First, the Senate had never gotten around to officially approving Caesar's invasion in Gaul, which may or may not have made his whole invasion sort of illegal. Second, Caesar was amassing a very strong, loyal army and all this wealth building up his power base. A lot of people remembered his abuses of power when he had been consul and were very, very nervous about a supercharged Caesar and his own army and his own money. I mean, what could go wrong? I see See nothing wrong with this. So this whole series of events triggered a lot of people's Sulla-related PTSD because remember, the Sulla and Marius civil war had only been about 22 years ago. And Caesar was the nephew of Marius, and Marius was the populist who lost the civil war. And Caesar had made a career of standing on Marius's shoulders and sort of being Marius reborn, shall we say. Yeah, he'd really appealed to the populace by signaling his very open support of Marius, which was actually kind of dangerous and something a lot of people didn't do because the Sullicide had won and they had then enacted all these extremely bloody prescriptions, which resulted in people's severed heads being hung up in the Senate building and festooned over the rostra and stuff. And if you need a reminder of what happened and what Caesar did, go back to Julius Caesar and the Pirate's Ransom. It's all covered in there and you'll get an idea of what young Caesar was like. And it wasn't just Caesar. It was everyone else in Rome. I mean, that war, the Sulla and Marius Civil War, affected the way people saw Caesar. Absolutely. But the way Caesar behaved as a young man is very telling of the way he was always going to behave. Julius Caesar, if you go back to the Julius Caesar and the Pirate's Ransom, of course you get context for the way people lived during that time and the horrors that they had to go through. But you also get a really good sense for who young Julius Caesar was and how he became the man he is today. Because Julius Caesar at the age of 17, on the wrong side, on the losing side of a civil war, went up to a dictator and was like, hey, I know you want me to divorce my wife. I know that you could put my head in the rostra. And you know what? I'm not going to do it. That's the kind of guy we're talking about. So third, there were some in Rome who did not approve of Caesar's invasion of Gaul for humanitarian reasons. Really? <laughs> yeah, I know. This actually surprised me when I found it. I mean, because I'm all about the humanitarian reasons here, but I'm a little bit surprised. The ancient Romans were a lot more permissive about the rules of war than we are now in modern times. There was no equivalent to the Geneva Convention. But there were some general expectations. For instance, you weren't supposed to attack your allies, and you weren't supposed to attack people who've already surrendered. There were times when Julius Caesar did both during the Gallic Wars. Some people felt that Caesar's actions against Gallic and Germanic tribes were way out of proportion with their perceived offenses, because he was inventing pretexts for attacking these people. The ancient Romans liked to tell themselves that their wars were justified, and what justified meant could vary. If another country attacked Rome or a Roman ally, war was justified, for example. But sometimes a war was also justified, and that's in quotation marks, if another culture looked like it was getting too strong and might be a threat to Rome in the future. So the standards for a quote-unquote justified war were kind of loose and totally self-serving. But to many people in Rome, Caesar's actions in Gaul did not even meet that low bar. There was a movement in the Senate to have him tried for war crimes. So for all these reasons, there was a big contingent back home calling for Caesar to be recalled from Gaul and stripped of his command before his term as governor was even over. And in 56 BC, 
two years into Caesar's Gallic invasion, one of those praetors who tried to get Caesar hauled up before the Senate for an inquiry, Lucius Domitius, was up for consul. Domitius basically ran on a platform of taking Caesar's armies away from him, and this appealed to a lot of people for very good reasons. Caesar had to call in the big guns from afar, Pompey and Crassus, and basically persuade them to run for consul against Domitius. The deal was that Caesar would send a large contingent of his own soldiers to vote for them, basically stacking the decks. Both Crassus and Pompey would get their own provinces and opportunities to wage war and enrich themselves out of the deal, and in return, they would pass a resolution to allow Caesar to keep his governorship for another five years. Crassus and Pompey got their consulship, and they did it through underhanded means. First, they both held back their intention to run until the last minute, which blocked the elections from being staged at the appointed time. This triggered a rule that if the elections weren't held when they were supposed to be, a special appointee, theoretically a disinterested third party, had to be chosen to oversee special elections. This all sounds very shady to me, Jenny. Uh, it gets shadier. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Crassus and Pompey made sure that the appointee was loyal to them. And then, when Domitius went to the forum to stand as candidate, Pompey sent his soldiers to rough him up a bit. A riot ensued. Domitius was wounded, and some of his entourage were killed. Domitius, now effectively intimidated, Pompey and Crassus declared themselves consuls, surrounded the Senate building with their armed followers, and killed anyone who dared to object. This is what democracy looks like! There's so many problems with the democratic system of ancient Rome, but, you know. I love it when people just talk about Rome as this sort of bastion of ancient world democracy. It's like, really? Really? Do you know what they were doing? I mean, again, this is the late Republic, so this is when everything is going wrong, but even during, like, the heyday of the Republic when women have no vote and lots of people don't have any votes because they don't meet the status for being citizens. Is that really democracy? We could do a whole sub rant about how democracy was not democracy in ancient Rome. Anyway, Pompey and Crassus voted Caesar into another five years in Gaul, and each of them took a lucrative governorship for themselves, Spain for Pompey and Syria for Crassus. And allegedly, they drew lots to figure out who was going to get what. I really want to know how that conversation went. I think they cast lots. Yeah, I bet there was cheating involved. Look, okay, these are not the most honest guys. I don't know. I mean, they both, Spain and Syria are both pretty plum positions. I think they both could have had whatever they wanted. Well, yeah, and they just gave Caesar what he wanted. Because that's how the triumvirate works. So now Pompey and Crassus were in charge. And this time around, the gloves were off. I mean, the gloves have been basically off the whole time. I mean, I'm not sure they owned a pair of gloves. (laughs) (laughs) They spent their years stomping on rules that were supposed to limit their power and using their armed followers to intimidate political enemies. They even blocked opposing senators from entering the building during voting days and imprisoned people who voted against them. Because democracy. And this was good. For Caesar, 
He got his next five years. It even looked likely that Pompey and Crassus might use their clout to get Caesar appointed consul remotely when his governorship ended, so he didn't have to stand for election personally and expose himself to prosecution, because why? Why would he do that? Why would he want to do that? Yeah, why would he want to do that? He's got two mates in charge. Come on, guys, just do what I need you to do. Everything will be cool, and then you can peace out. Caesar just wanted to coast to his next position without any of those pesky charges about misuse of government and misappropriation and war crimes. None of that. None of those pesky little war crimes charges coming back to bite him. I mean, these are not small charges. But the bad news for Caesar was that the triumvirate was starting to unravel. Because all good things must come to an end. Anyway, Pompey and Crassus's consulship ended in 54 BC. And as soon as his term ended, Crassus packed up and left town for the new job he'd lined up for himself as governor of Syria. He was thrilled about this appointment because he was thirsty for military victory. Pompey was basically a god of war at this point, and Caesar was just covering himself in glory and gall, just covered like a cloak of gold at this point. Right, dripping in glory. Him and Agrippina would be fighting over that cloth of gold. Oh my God, could you imagine... Julius Caesar and Agrippina the Younger in the same room. No, I can't. We've got to get back to our poor man Crassus. Crassus hadn't had a good war or a good fight since the Spartacus War about 16 years before. And Crassus won the Spartacus War, but Pompey got a lot of the credit for it. Pompey just sort of turned up at the end, rounded up some little bands and pockets of people literally fleeing. They were refugees. Yeah, exactly. Refugees, probably not even like slaves who were fighting slaves. And, you know, just massacred them because Pompey the Great... Right. He's going back to the Senate and telling them that he basically cleaned up the whole Spartacus War when Crassus had done all the work. Crassus felt like he had been sort of cheated of his military glory. Crassus was hoping someone in Syria would start something so he could get his war on because he had not achieved the military greatness that he wanted. He was a man of advancing years. This was his last shot. He was gonna do it. But when Crassus got to Syria, he was deeply disappointed to find that nobody wanted to rebel against Rome. Oh, nobody? Nobody even wanted to do just a little rebellion. Not even just a teensy insurrection? No, no insurrections for Crassus. Not even some, like, violent protests? No violent protests. How about some peaceful sit-ins? No. Oh. So Crassus got a big old case of the sads. Crassus had the sads. So completely unprovoked and for no particular reason, Crassus decided to raise an army and make war against the Parthian Empire, a longtime enemy of Rome, but one that hadn't done anything particularly warlike lately. But Crassus had heard they had plenty of loot to plunder, and again, he needed a little war. Yeah, this might make it a justified war. They have loot, you guys. No, this does not make it a justified war. <laughs> But here's the thing. The Parthians were horse archers, similar to the Scythians. They used composite recurve bows like the Scythians and barbed Scythian arrows like the Scythians. And as far as I can tell, they were basically Scythians. And if you want to know more about the Scythians, check out Amazon's Warrior Women of the Ancient Steppe. We tell you all about them. Their specialty was what used to be known as the quote-unquote Parthian shot, where the archer faces backwards on a galloping horse, shooting arrows behind with deadly accuracy. This is really hard. They made it look easy, but it's hard. Can I just say, like, you know, ancient history fangirl, new rule to be added into the canon, do not pick a fight with the Parthians. 
Right, don't pick fights with the Parthians. We're about to tell you why. Somewhere in the deserts of Parthia, Crassus's troops were surrounded on all sides by deadly horse archers under a barrage of arrows. The arrows the Parthians used were Scythian arrows, which were barbed, frequently dipped in poison, and very, very nasty. Here's how it went down according to Plutarch. Quote, The Parthians stationed their mail-clad horsemen in front of the Romans, and then, with the rest of their cavalry in loose array, rode around them, tearing up the surface of the ground and raising from the depths great heaps of sand, which fell in limitless showers of dust, so that the Romans could neither see clearly nor speak plainly, but being crowded in a narrow compass and falling upon one another, were shot and died no easy nor even speedy death. For, in the agonies of a convulsive pain and writhing about the arrows, they would break them off in their wounds, and then, in trying to pull out by force the barbed heads which had pierced their veins and sinews, they tore and disfigured themselves the more. When Publius, that's Crassus's son, urged them to charge the enemy's mail-clad horsemen, they showed him that their hands were riveted to their shields and their feet nailed through and through to the ground so that they were helpless either for flight or for self-defense. Can we just pause for a minute there and just think about exactly what you've just described, Jenny? So this is a giant tire fire. These soldiers are getting shot with these arrows, right? They're surrounded by these Parthian archers who are literally riding circles around them and just shooting into them with these barbed arrows. And if you look at the head of a Scythian arrow, it's got these barbs on it so that you can't pull it out without yanking tendons and chunks of flesh out with it. So these people are basically getting their hands nailed to their own shields by these arrows and their feet literally nailed to the ground. They're trying to pull the arrows out and they're yanking out sinews and tendons and their general is yelling at them to retreat or do something and they literally can't move. It's a huge tire fire and it's just like, to me, it's really heartbreaking. I'm sorry to put you through the emotional ringer, Jen. It's fine. I mean, I'm overly emotional. It's just part of my personality. It's okay. But it is just one of those things where like, I think sometimes you read the um, descriptions, especially from the ancient world sources, and you can almost lose the impact of what was happening to these people. And like, they literally were nailed to the ground. They were not going anywhere. Imagine the helplessness of that. And imagine the terror and the disorientation because you also can't see anything. The enemy cavalry is kicking up dust and sand so you can't breathe. And there's sand in your eyes and grit in your mouth. And you can't move and you can't talk and you can't see much. And all your friends around you are not dying quickly. They're getting impaled and they're trying to pull these arrows out and getting more arrows shot into them while they're doing it and writhing around on the ground and not being able to flee, and it's terrifying. And Crassus's son was killed in this attack, and Crassus, as a result, was extremely despondent, as you'd expect. And according to Plutarch, quote, although the soldiers held Crassus to blame for all their ills, I mean... Yeah, he was the one who wanted this war. I would say Crassus was to blame for all their ills. That's an accurate assessment. Well done, Plutarch. (laughs) (laughs) Still, they yearned to see his face, but he was lying on the ground by himself, enveloped in darkness, to the multitude an illustration of the ways of fortune, but to the wise an example of foolish ambition, which would not let him rest satisfied, to be first and greatest among many myriads of men, but made him think, because he was judged inferior to two men only, that he lacked everything." And comparison is the thief of joy, guys. If Crassus had just been happy to have been Crassus, the richest man in the ancient world, the guy who stopped the Spartacus War, part of the triumvirate, he could have been a happy person who didn't wind up dead 
in a blanket fort in Syria because Crass has made a blanket fort and anyone like me, anyone who's ever needed to put themselves into a blanket fort because life has been a bit tough will understand what Crassus did here. I've done it. I've done it many times. <laughs> you know, I did it last weekend. He was retreating from the outside world to try and regroup and to understand the trauma he'd gone through, especially losing his child. Well, look, his son had just died and all his men were nailed to the ground. So it didn't, you know, things had just not worked out so well just now. This is Crassus's version of what Nero did when his world was ending. Nero took a nap and woke up and everything was in ruins and Crassus built a blanket for it. I mean, it's just like your coping mechanisms. We've all got those. Exactly. Crassus still had some of his army, but they were inches from mutiny because, you know, it's hard to command your army from under a blanket fort. And when you refuse to come out and you don't want to give your orders to people because you're in a blanket fort, like, I get it. Well, sometimes they come out a bit muffled. They come out a bit muffled. I imagine that, like, it probably smells in that blanket fort because he's not taking care of himself. And it's hot. You know, it's probably pretty sweaty in there. So hot. Sweaty in the blanket fort. We don't know what Crassus was doing in the blanket for us. We hesitate to speculate on that. <laughs> we just know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was a blanket for <laughs> I can already see the merch. <laughs> I just want like his little like severe head popping out. Poor Crassus. His little head just poking out of the blanket. <laughs> With a little tent over him. <laughs> right. Like what? What's going on? Oh, shit. They're mutinying. No. Anyway, when one of the Parthian generals rode up to Crassus's camp under a flag of truce and offered to bring him to the Parthian king to negotiate a peace treaty, Crassus was very, very suspicious. But his men were about to mutiny and they demanded that he go meet with the Parthian king. I can't possibly fathom why. Because they wanted to go the fuck home, Jen. They were done with this war. I mean, there was sarcasm, but sure. In case anybody missed the sarcasm, <laughs> I don't know how you could possibly miss the sarcasm, but just in case. Crassus did not want this meeting, but his soldiers got violent. According to Plutarch, quote, At first he tried entreaties and arguments. If they would just hold out for what was left of the day, during the night they could reach the mountains and rough country, and he showed them the road thither and exhorted them not to abandon hope when safety was so near. But when they grew angry with him and clashed their arms together and threatened him, then he was terrified and began to go towards Serena. Serena is the place where he was supposed to go to meet the king. As he went, however, he turned and said, quote, within a quote, you Roman commanders here present, you see that I go because I must, and you are eyewitnesses of the shameful violence I suffer. But tell the world, if you get safely home, that Crassus perished because he was deceived by his enemies and not because he was delivered up to them by his countrymen. I mean, to be honest, though, Crassus made his own blanket fort here. He's the one who picked this fight. He's the one who made his own blanket fort, and now he has to lie in it. I included that quote because I wanted to have a little bit of a comparison between what happens when Crassus's people mutiny and what happens when Caesar's people mutiny. We saw that in the first Vercingetorix episode, where Caesar basically, like, his troops were kind of in the same spot about going to face Ariovistus, and he talked them out of it. I also think it's a good comparison, slightly unfair, because Caesar's son didn't die fighting in this war. Caesar wasn't dealing with grief. We can't say that Crassus was depressed, but we know he was grieving his son. And we see how Crassus deals with insurrection in the Spartacus War when he enacts decimation. We know that actually Crassus is a really hard commander. He's not someone who is um, really flexible. So this is quite different. Like he could have whipped them into shape and had them bend against his will. But there's obviously something in him that from generations in the future, we can speculate, was broken at this point in time. 
You know, I think that's a really good point here. Like, if we want to get into Crassus's head and question why it was that he gave in, did he give in because he was dealing with this grief and because he felt broken? And would the Crassus of 16 years ago with the Spartacus Wars have reacted the same way? No, he wouldn't, because we know during the Spartacus Wars that Crassus had to raise armies very quickly, just like Vercingetorix did. And the men that he was raising into being soldiers had not a lot of experience, and Crassus had to create a fighting force really, really quickly. And he did that brutally and efficiently by making the men bond together. And if they showed any inclination towards desertion or other things, which we will cover later on in the Spartacus War, he was not afraid to enact really old school methods of things like decimation. Right. And that that does harken back to Vercingetorix. Both of them didn't have a lot of time. He didn't. By the time Crassus took over the campaign against Spartacus, two other Roman leaders had fallen. And Spartacus's army, which was massive, like between 40,000 and 100,000, was ravaging the Italian countryside, the Italian bread bowl. Yeah. So basically... I think Crassus perished because his son had died and he lost when he expected to win. And maybe some part of him gave up. Yeah. Crassus went to meet the Parthians on foot. On the way, he was offered a horse and a crowd of Parthian grooms lifted him up onto it, then crowded around the horse, beating and terrifying the poor animal to a gallop, which we do not approve of. No. One of Crassus's <laughs> lieutenants tried to get them to back off, grabbing the horse by the bridle and killing one of the Parthian grooms with a sword. This is a little bit hard to picture, but I think what was going on here, like when you read the ancient sources, the picture you get is that Crassus walks up to the king of Parthia's camp on foot, and one of the king of Parthia's aides comes to meet him and says, why are you on foot? You're a great general, you should ride a horse. And he's kind of being contemptuous here, but he puts Crassus on this horse, and then there's a, a mob around him of people who are angry at Crassus, and they start harassing this horse, possibly to scare Crassus or to intimidate him or something like like that. It's hard to picture, but the point is that there's now this angry mob around Crassus on this horse. One of Crassus's lieutenants tries to defend him from all this and winds up killing one of the Parthians, and that is basically pouring gasoline on an already volatile situation, because suddenly a scuffle turned into a brawl, and in the ensuing violence, a mob of Parthians dragged Crassus off his horse, threw him to the ground, and chopped off his head and right hand. That's according to one story. Cassius Dio tells us that the Parthians poured molten gold down Crassus's throat because of his love of wealth. And we're recording this on the day that the first episode of the final season of Game of Thrones is going to be aired in America. And you know what we're thinking. We're thinking the death of Viserys. Absolutely. <laughs> if you're a George R. R. Martin fan, and Jen and I both are, you see so many instances where he's cribbing from history as well he should because you cannot make this shit up. You can. It's why our friends over at the Bestseller Experiment are always saying, come listen to our podcast because literally all you need to do is listen to history. It's all actually happened. George R. R. Martin read his Cassius Dio. Absolutely. And, you know, it is a fitting end for the richest man in Rome who did not make all of his money legally to end with molten gold being poured down his throat. There might not have been specific rules in the books that said you can't light fires in the middle of Rome and then go and buy up entire neighborhoods at a very cheap price because they're in the path of the fire. Like, it might not have been technically illegal, but maybe it was. There probably weren't laws against it, but I think it was 
a pretty shitty thing to do. We disapprove here at Ancient History Fangirl. And you can find out more about that in Julius Caesar and the Devil's Three-Way, which is the second episode in this series. So anyway, I'm going to get back to our story. Crassus's head was sent to the Parthian king Erodes II, where it was used as a prop in a performance of a Greek tragedy by Euripides. That tragedy was the Bacchae, which I'm sure we're going to talk about in the future. I kind of feel like we ought to read that play and point out where Crassus's head made its appearance. <laughs> a mock triumph was also thrown, in which a man who looked like Crassus was dressed up in a woman's outfit. Because toxic masculinity... Yep, and paraded through the streets amidst a crowd of lictors carrying severed Roman heads on the ends of their ceremonial axes. Crassus died in Parthia in 53 BC. He was about 62 years old. I mean, it's just a weird scene, right? It was in the Parthian capital city or something like that. This is a party that the king threw that was celebrating how Crassus, who completely made his own blanket fort here, I'm sorry to say, got his own head handed to him and then and then it was just totally treated with all this disrespect and I I don't feel that bad for Crassus here. I don't feel that bad for Crassus here. And I'm sure Spartacus did not feel that bad for Crassus here. <laughs> Remember Spartacus. Right. Remember Spartacus. We haven't done a show on him yet, but we will. So that was what Crassus got up to in the year after his consulship. It didn't go so well for him. Meanwhile, here's what Pompey was up to. Pompey stayed in Rome. He'd lined up his own cushy job as governor of Spain, but... Instead of going out there and picking a fight like Crassus did, he basically farmed it out to his underlings and stuck close to home, touring the pleasure palaces of Italy, as Plutarch describes it, with his wife, Julia. So remember, Julia was Julius Caesar's daughter, and she was 30 years younger than Pompey. She'd been 17 when she married Pompey, and he'd been 47, so Pompey was older than her dad. Oh. Just wait, it gets worse. These two were a super annoying PDA couple. They were wildly in love. And if you're getting the icks at this, like we are, believe it or not, a lot of people in ancient Rome did too. Plutarch said, quote, Indeed, the fondness of the young woman for her husband was notorious, although the mature age of Pompey did not invite such devotion. Little unfair to men in their 40s. I know some very handsome men in their 40s. However, it's not because it's just a man in his 40s being in love. It's a man in his 40s being in love with a 17-year-old girl. Anyway, I think what grossed out the ancient Romans wasn't so much the age difference, because remember, they married girls as young as 14 to men in their 50s. It was the fact that Julia actually liked her husband, meaning that the age difference was okay, as long as Julia didn't like Pompey. But she did, so now it's a problem. Yeah, and that's also really gross. Layers and layers of gross here, okay? Plutarch speculates that Julia liked Pompey so much because he was faithful to her. And like, nice to her and stuff. So whatever his other faults, Pompey appears to have been a guy who was nice to his wife, which we know is pretty rare in the ancient world, and I guess puts him on level with Germanicus for being nice to his wife. Right. Like, we've seen a few guys who are nice to their wives, like maybe three in how many episodes has this been, like, since we started? Oh my god, it's over a year of fangirl, guys. Vanishingly rare. Anyway... Pompey left his governorship in Spain to subordinate so he could spend his days necking with his very young wife in the pleasure gardens and ugh. But their happiness was not to last because in 54 BC, not even a year after Pompey's consulship ended, Julia died in childbirth. She was 22 years old. Pompey was heartbroken. And when Caesar heard the news in Gaul, so was he. 
Julia's death was another major blow to the triumvirate. Now Pompey had nothing to tie him to Caesar. Meanwhile, things were really starting to devolve in Rome. Corruption, electoral bribery, and violence were rampant. Angry mobs stalked the streets, riots were endemic, and at one point, a mob burned the Senate house down while cremating the body of a guy who'd run for praetor, who'd been killed in a gang war against his political opponent. People were talking seriously about making Pompey dictator, if only so he'd use his troops to instill order because there was no police force in ancient Rome at this point in history. Pompey was voted sole consul in 52 BC, and he immediately passed a number of laws to try and limit the rampant corruption and violence. He also broke a lot of those laws himself pretty much immediately after passing them. Tacitus called him maker and breaker of his own laws. I mean, fair enough, Tacitus. I've missed you. Where you been? <laughs> Way to call it, Tacitus. <laughs> Thanks for, you know, joining us here. <laughs> Pompey had a mandate now. Curb the corruption and violence and bribery. And he passed some laws aimed to do that, which were kind of a problem for Caesar, because this is all about Caesar, isn't it? Right. <laughs> One of those laws was a law about whether or not someone could stand for public office in absentia. One thing Caesar really, really wanted was for the Senate to give him permission to stand for consul in absentia so that he would have a nice, cushy, year-long job and immunity from prosecution and creditors because, whoopsie, he's done some bad things, waiting for him when he got home from Gaul without the need to enter the city of Rome as a private citizen. Because if you enter the city of Rome as a private citizen, you're open to all kinds of prosecution. We're just drilling that home in case, like, we've gone on too many tangents for you. It bears repeating because it explains a lot of Caesar's behavior. And now that Pompey was sole consul, Caesar was hoping Pompey would just call in that favor for him. Because remember, people are supposed to be able to vote for their consuls. And Caesar didn't want people to vote. He just wanted to be appointed consul. That's what he's trying to get Pompey to do. Just appoint me consul. Just say I can be consul. So I don't have to show up and deal with this whole electoral process nonsense. So... Initially, this actually did happen. In 52 BC, after Caesar defeated Vercingetorix at Elysia, which we talk about in Vercingetorix, All You Love Must Burn Part 3, the Senate was so pleased that there wouldn't be a horde of angry Gauls pouring over the Alps to enact their revenge that they voted a 20-day holiday for Caesar and all 10 tribunes of the plebs approved legislation that allowed Caesar to stand for consul in absentia exactly as he wanted. The tribunes of the plebs, by the way, are going to be important later, incidentally, so I might as well explain about them now. There were two classes of citizens in ancient Rome, patricians and plebeians. The patricians were the upper class and the plebeians were basically everyone else who weren't slaves or freedmen. And yeah, let's just remind you, citizens, there were lots of people who were not citizens but did live in Rome. The tribunes of the plebs were 10 officials in the Roman government who were supposed to represent the interests of the ordinary Roman citizens. Commoners could serve as tribunes of the plebs. And this was important because the rest of the Senate and all the other officials in government had to come from the patrician class. And that's kind of mind boggling when you think about it. It's kind of mind-boggling because of how historically Rome has been held up as this shining example of democracy. Yet another nail in the coffin of that myth. The tribunes had a powerful tool at their disposal, veto power over laws passed by the aristocratic Senate. This made them an important counterbalance to the Senate, which was comprised largely of aristocratic conservatives who were primarily concerned with preserving the privileges of the upper classes. This wasn't true of all senators, of course. You had populists in the Senate who derived their power from the support of the common people. Remember, Julius Caesar was one of these, and so was his uncle Marius before him, and, you know, Catiline. 
Those were the tribunes of the plebs, and when all ten of them approved a motion that Caesar got to stand for consul in absentia, he definitely took it as the will of the people speaking on his behalf. But then Pompey passed a law that said, no, sorry, nobody could stand for consul in absentia. But then he added an addendum to this law, specifically exempting Caesar. Problem was, this addendum was non-legally binding. So people were very confused by this. Was Caesar grandfathered in or not, Pompey? It was all kind of vague. And here's where you see Pompey being kind of wishy-washy on Caesar. He was ambivalent, and there's a reason why. Pompey and Caesar didn't have a terrible relationship during the triumvirate. They worked together. They were kind of friends. They had a lot of common, including war and Julia, Julia Caesar's daughter and Pompey's daughter wife. There was always something to talk about when they got together. Yeah, totally. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> the ancient world is so disturbing. It truly is. But we love it. We wouldn't have it any other way. Well, we would, but we can't. <laughs> well, we can't have it any other way, so we might as well just not wish for things we can't have. But Pompey had historically not been very well accepted by the patrician class. His dad, Strabo the Butcher, one of my favorite names in ancient history, Strabo the Butcher, who was struck by lightning. Instead of dying, putting on his shoes like Caesar's dad. Strabo the Butcher was the first in the family to achieve patrician status. And he came from a rural background, all things the established patricians were prejudiced against. Those established patricians, by the way, the conservative aristocrats, the leading men of Rome, they called themselves the optimates or best men. I mean, let's be clear. This is a nickname that they gave themselves. They were an obnoxious clique. They rather disparagingly referred to Strabo as a quote-unquote new man. They didn't see Pompey as one of them. This meant Pompey had kind of an inferiority complex, despite being a military golden boy. But Crassus's death had left Pompey the richest and most powerful person in Rome. He was the only one who commanded his own army, and he had immense wealth that he'd amassed on his campaigns. Now that Caesar was growing in power, the aristocratic conservative senators saw Pompey as their last best defense against a Caesar takeover. Suddenly, after years of rejecting him, the wealthy in crowd, the best men, Ugh. were starting to suck up to Pompey, and he wanted to make his new friends happy because he just wants to belong with the cool kids. Oh, Pompey, do better. Pompey's in middle school still. He just wants to be friends with the in crowd, and they didn't accept him, and they didn't accept his father, but all of a sudden they're like, hey, Pompey, you want to come to our party on Saturday? Hey, Pompey, you want to come and drink with us out behind the Senate building? It's going to be awesome. And Pompey is totally just like, yeah, you guys. Pompey has terrible emotional intelligence. Like, the minute the cool people are sniffing around you when they've been, like, rejecting you for ages or the cliquey people, you should know they're up to something. Right. They're totally up to something, Pompey. We've been in middle school, too. We know. We've been in middle school. We've been in high school. We've been everywhere that there is a clique. There still are cliques in adult life. Just never fall for it. Come on, Pompey. Time to graduate. Pompey tried at first to walk a line between pleasing the anti-Caesar faction in Rome, the best men, Ugh. and not pissing Caesar off too much. But you know what they say about a good compromise? It makes nobody happy. Another law of Pompey's was more of a direct threat to Caesar, because it's all about Caesar, let's not forget. In order to prevent people from skipping town right after their political office by landing lucrative governorships, thereby avoiding prosecution for abuses of power while in office, <clears throat> Caesar, Pompey, <clears throat> they all did this. Pompey proposed 
a five-year gap between when someone could hold public office in Rome and when they could hold a governorship. Part of this law said that existing governors could basically be recalled at any time and replaced by a governor who hadn't held office in five years. This was, I imagine, to tamp down on existing corruption now by replacing current governors who had huge debts with those who didn't have those debts so they'd have less reason to pillage their provinces. Maybe, one would hope. That part of the law was the direct threat to Caesar. It meant that right now, he could be recalled at any time from Gaul and replaced with someone else. But Caesar wasn't ready to go home. It was sometime around 51 BC, and he was still wrapping things up in Gaul. Technically, he had about three years left on his second governorship. For the first few months of Pompey's consulship, he was the only consul, which was a huge strain on the, like, Roman checks and balances of power. Every consul needed a co-consul. Right. Rule number one of ruling in Rome. Every consul has to have a co-consul. Otherwise, you have a dictatorship, guys. But partway through, Pompey got a co-consul, a guy named Marcellus. And while Pompey seemed kind of 50-50 on Caesar at this point, Marcellus had a raging anti-Caesar agenda. I mean, Marcellus, is that your raging anti-Caesar agenda or are you just happy to see me? (laughs) (laughs) I'm shocked, shocked and appalled. Put that back in your toga, Marcellus. Not appropriate. (laughs) Marcellus immediately, now that his toga is fixed, started calling loudly and at length for Caesar to be stripped of his legions. Just strip him. (laughs) He demanded, demanded that Pompey clarify once and for all that Caesar definitely, definitely did not get to stand for consul in abstentia. Absolutely not. We will not stand for it. He even hauled in some poor guy from a colony Caesar had granted citizenship to. Had that guy flogged. For no particular reason. For no reason. Let's just flog the guy. And he told this poor flogged man to go to Gaul and, quote, show Caesar his stripes. Asshole move. Total asshole move. And flogging a Roman citizen was majorly illegal. This is a pointless and cruel act that Marcellus did for no other reason than to give Caesar the finger long distance style. And bear in mind, this is one of the best men. Ugh. He was out for Caesar's blood. And a new toga. And a new toga. Maybe that gives him a little more coverage in the front, frontal area. Definitely needs some more coverage in that front. I'm just saying, Marcellus, just take care of it, okay? Anyway, (laughs) speaking of anti-Caesar, raging anti-Caesar agendas, here's where Cato comes into the story. And this is actually not the first time Cato has been in the story. He appeared in our telling of the Catalan conspiracy way back in Julius Caesar and the Devil's Three-Way. If you remember, Cato was the one who accused Caesar of being part of the conspiracy when he objected to the conspirators in the Catalan conspiracy being executed without a trial. And since then, Cato had been an intractable enemy of Caesar and a thorn in his side. Cato was something extremely rare in the ancient Roman government, an anti-corruption crusader. In a political world where bribery was basically part of doing business, Cato absolutely refused to be bribed, and this made him a weirdo. Like, everybody took bribes. He fashioned himself as a strict moralist who wanted to drag the Roman Republic kicking and screaming back to its idealized, highly moral roots, whether it wanted to go there or not, and whether those roots were actually moral or not. Because remember, this is a republic that was founded on a story about sexual assault. I mean, Cato had some issues, didn't he? 
A lot of senators hated Caesar because he was a populist who wanted to threaten patrician privilege. Cato was definitely a patrician too. He came from an old and noble family. And as far as I can tell, he wasn't particularly populist. But I think Cato hated Caesar because of Caesar's lust for power and his king-like tendencies. To Cato, Caesar represented a threat to the Republic. And he wasn't wrong. So here are some fun facts about Cato. Cato always had an extremely strong sense of justice. Plutarch tells us that one time when Cato was a little boy, he and some of his friends were all holding a mock trial with judges and accusers and a defendant and everything. And these little kids games were super advanced because I definitely was not playing mock trials as a small child. I was probably like daydreaming and walking into trees. <laughs> Right, same. I was probably like, you know, hanging out in the hallways at my school talking to myself because I was a weirdo. I was my best friend. Now I just talk to Jen. Ah, uh, yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, that's how we have this podcast, isn't it? Sort of like I'm talking to myself, though. I'm like, now, now I am going to eat a lean cuisine. Now I'm putting it in the fridge. <laughs> Jen's like, why are you texting me this? The minutia of your daily operations don't need to know it. Sometimes I don't answer back. <laughs> Here's the thing. We're five hours apart and I'm in a meeting. Please stop <laughs> texting me. <laughs> stop texting me about the minutia of your day. Anyway, getting back to Cato's childhood games. When one of the little boys in this mock trial was convicted in the game and carried out of the room, Cato lost his shit. He grabbed hold of the boy and hid him from the other kids. And I just... I have to just stop here for a minute because when you think about that, Cato only wants justice if it's Cato's form of justice. And he's showing that from a really young age. Yeah, that's actually a really good point because you see it in the Catalan conspiracy. Cato was one of the ones, probably the lead voice, who was pushing for um, punishment without a trial because Cato knew what justice was and it was his form of justice. And going through the judicial process was not as fair to him as just enacting whatever Cato thought was just. You can see him doing that as a little kid, basically kidnapping this boy and <laughs> hiding him from the other kids because he thought what happened to him wasn't fair even though he was convicted by a trial of his peers. Cato felt that his voice wasn't being heard and that he knew the right way things should be. And if you don't agree with him, he will just do what he wants to do. Cato was about 14 when Sulla became dictator and Sulla took a liking to Cato. Sulla was always summoning Cato to his house for these little visits. And this must have been extremely disturbing because Plutarch describes Sulla's house as, quote, an inferno owing to the multitude who were brought there and put to torture. Even so, Cato had absolutely no qualms about talking back to Sulla in his torture house. Sulla found this extremely amusing, and no doubt it made Cato's parents break out in a cold sweat. One time, Cato was with his tutor, Sarpedon, and he saw some heads of freshly executed aristocrats being carried out of Sulla's house. Cato turned to Sarpedon and asked him why nobody had killed Sulla yet. Sarpedon said, They fear him, my child, more than they hate him. So Cato said, Give me a sword that I might free my country from slavery. He was maybe 14 at this point. This, of course, terrified Sarpedon. He was pretty sure Cato meant it and might try something very, very stupid if left unattended. So he was very careful not to let Cato out of his sight in the capital or in public or anywhere he might run into Sulla, which was basically anywhere because you never know where Sulla is going to pop up. Cato was from a wealthy background, but he made a giant point of living modestly. He was living modestly at people. He engaged in punishing exercise, subjected himself to extreme 
extreme temperatures without much protective clothing and insisted on walking everywhere, refusing to ride horses, refusing to ride in a litter or a cart, which is what most people did. He drank only the cheapest wine he could find and went around outside without shoes or a shirt, which everyone thought was really eccentric. No shoes, no shirt, no service, Cato. If he's deciding, you know, he wants to go around not wearing any shoes, he's gonna go hungry. No soup for Cato. Well, Cato wouldn't have your soup because Cato is very modest and he doesn't need soup. He needs a single crust of bread every three days and water. Right. Cato does not need your soup. He doesn't eat soup unless it's gruel. He doesn't eat soup unless it's a very thin broth. And even then, if he even detects the slightest chunk of meat or veg in there, he has to say no. No. Right, because it's not thin enough broth. <laughs> what are we What are we even saying? I have no idea. Because he has to make sure that everybody knows that he's murdering himself at all times. Cato had a daughter named Portia and a wife named Marcia. Once, a rich man named Hortentius asked for the hand of Cato's daughter in marriage, but Cato refused because Hortentius was about 30 years older than Portia, which wasn't that weird for ancient Rome, but for some reason he thought that that wasn't okay, which good for you, Cato. Like, yeah. But lest you think, hold up. Oh, you're going to just rip that rug out from under me. Yes, I am. Lest you think Cato gave a shit about women or anything. He then turned around, divorced his own wife, Marcia, and married her to Hortensius, saying, this is okay with me as long as it's okay with her dad. Note that he never asked Marcia what she thought about the whole situation. Later, when Hortensius died, Marcia and her children moved back in with Cato, and they may or may not have remarried. I'm not sure. The sources conflict on that. Julius Caesar himself speculated that Cato orchestrated all this so that Marcia would come back into Cato's household with wealth she'd inherited from Hortentius once he died. It was kind of a scandal in ancient Rome at the time. This whole Cato wife situation. Cato wife swapping? Cato wife swapping. I don't think he got a wife out of the deal. I think he just swapped his wife to Hortentius and then waited for the dude to die so he could get his shit. I have so many feels about that. I mean, it just sort of undermines this whole story about Cato being extremely moral, which is kind of the point. Like, Cato is moral to Cato, in Cato's opinion. Well, yeah. I mean, it goes back to his behavior as a child. As long as Cato gets the result he wants, that's justice. And in this case, sure, take my wife for a small period of time, and then I'll take your wealth when you're dead. Thanks. And I'll get the wife back. Oh, because I'm Cato. Everything comes up Cato. Marsha, why are you going back to this dude? Why? I want to tell you guys my favorite Cato story now. Oh, do tell. During the Catalan conspiracy, Cato noticed that Caesar was reading a personal letter during the Senate proceedings. Instead of paying attention, Cato declared that the letter that Caesar was reading was probably some secret missive from one of the conspirators, and he accused Caesar of being involved. And then Cato demanded that that Caesar show him the letter. This is so good. Caesar hands over the letter because he's like, oh, is this what you want? Okay. Cato decides, I'm going to read this letter aloud. But as he was reading it aloud, he realized that it was a very explicit, possibly X-rated, send nudes, love letter to Caesar from Cato's half-sister, Servilia. <laughs> Caesar doesn't even say anything. He just is like, all right. And he hands Cato the letter. It's greatest. You can really see why Cato hates Caesar. Cato just walked around with like the fire of a thousand suns burning in his breast about Caesar and his sister was totally banging that guy. And of course he felt some kind of way about that because men own women in the ancient world. When Sulla was finally out of power, Cato started prosecuting people from his own political party, including friends and family members who'd been Sulla informers during the prosecutions. And we're not saying that it's good to be a Sulla informer during the prosecution. This is bad. But Cato had absolutely no qualms about this. And even when you he liked you and you were 
his friend or his family member, he was not going to hesitate to bring down the hammer of justice on you. Nothing stopped Cato from doing what was right or what Cato thought was right. And those were basically the same thing in Cato's head. When Pompey returned from war in 61 BC and wanted both a consulship and a triumph, Cato loudly protested in the Senate and forced Pompey to choose. Pompey picked the triumph. And when Caesar wanted the same thing in 59 BC for his first consulship, which we talked about in Julius Caesar and the Devil's Three-Way, basically we talk about everything in Julius Caesar and the Devil's Three-Way. Go listen to that episode. Cato pulled a filibuster to prevent that too. Speaking continuously from dawn to dusk, Caesar picked the consulship. And this kind of just sums up who Caesar and Pompey were in just two very clear decisions. When Caesar joined up with Pompey and Crassus to form the triumvirate, Cato risked intense backlash to obstructed at every turn. One time, when Cato was making a speech against Caesar on the rostra, Caesar had his armed thugs drag him off the platform and throw him into jail. One of the senators declared he'd rather be, quote, in jail with Cato than in the Senate with Caesar. And that's from our guy Dio. Good appearance, Dio. Thanks for showing up. Cato also periodically got beat up by Caesar's followers for opposing his public votes. But Cato gave zero fucks about this. Cato gave absolutely no shits. Cato was just going to Cato. He was. When Caesar was in Gaul, Cato turned up the pressure on him at home. Cato was the ringleader of the movement to have Caesar tried for war crimes. He demanded that Caesar be handed over to the tribes he'd been warring with. Which is pretty great. Like, could you imagine if that actually happened? Oh my God, it would be so just. Like, I'm agreeing with you here, Cato. That is a good plan. Right. And we are ragging on Cato a lot, but sometimes I find myself really agreeing with Cato. Totally. I mean, we're ragging on him because, like, really, he had a patrician interest at heart. But he did see what he was doing as trying to save the Republic and not fall into dictatorship or let Julius Caesar just railroad everyone into his agenda. And so you can kind of see, like, that's not the worst. He's a complicated figure because it's like, on one hand, I feel like I see in Cato some people that I've known in my life where it's like, you know, I agree with your politics and I still kind of can't stand to talk to you about them because you're so uncompromising sometimes. And I agree with you. We all know people like that, right? But at the same time, sometimes something like this happens where it's like Cato was the only person seeing this and he was loud about it. And you kind of have to love him for that. So anyway, when Pompey and Crassus granted Caesar another five-year term as governor of Gaul, Cato protested that. When Crassus died, Cato saw his opportunity to break up the remaining power monopoly for good. Cato hated power monopolies, and yet again, you see where he's coming from here. He devoted himself full-time to driving a wedge between Pompey and Caesar any way he could. He constantly pressured Pompey to recall Caesar from his governorship and make him disband his army. When Pompey was elected to sole consul and made it his mission to instill law and order, it was because Cato publicly shamed him into it. Good job, Cato. Yeah, and Cato whipped up the best men— Ugh. Into an anti-Caesar frenzy. What Cato and the best men ugh, wanted was for Caesar to have to come back to Rome without an army and stand for consulship as a private citizen. And in fact, Cato also used to loudly declare to anyone listening like all the time that the minute Caesar disbanded his armies and entered Rome as a private citizen, he planned to have him impeached. Cato was not subtle about his endgame. In 50 BC, two years after Elysia, while Caesar was setting up his brand new province in Gaul, a faction of virulently anti-Caesar senators were elected to powerful positions in the Roman government, beating out all of Caesar's allies. Led by Cato, they started calling even more loudly for Caesar's impeachment, and an environment of Caesar paranoia started to take hold. When Caesar moved a legion close to the border of Italy to protect it against tribal incursions, a rumor circulated that he planned to invade. Some were saying he'd invaded already 
already, and was on his way to Rome right now to take his consulship. Sulla style. By now, the influential best men ugh, wanted Caesar recalled to Rome without his army. But as loud as they were, none of them could challenge Caesar seriously without Pompey's support. Because now that Crassus was dead, Pompey, the daddy shark, was the only one among them who also had his own army. Everyone else is super, super loud. And Pompey walks quietly here, but carries a big stick. Pompey Shark. He's torn between two worlds. He's sort of found himself amongst the patricians, part of their class, but he knows they don't really like him. He also knows that there's some stuff that the plebeians want, which is like having a voice and maybe having Caesar the populist giving him more power. But Pompey also knows that's a terrible idea. But Caesar's also his friend. Right. I think what you said earlier about belonging really applies to Pompey, you know, because I think Pompey doesn't feel like he belongs among the patricians. They haven't made him feel like he belongs. I think knowing Caesar, he might have felt like he belonged with Caesar because, as you said, even though Pompey was the one who was the golden boy and did everything right, he and Caesar also had a lot in common and he might have felt like Caesar was kind of a kindred spirit at a certain point. Absolutely. They both don't fit into that patrician class. Like, even though Caesar is from an old patrician family, his family was on the downturn. They supported the wrong person in the Civil War. He was a bit of a social outcast. And also what he was good at was what Pompey was good at, which was fighting and making war. So I think Pompey finding this new belonging among the patricians, which he really was not looking critically at at this point, I think you're right. Like, I think there was something in here about belonging and there was something in here about feeling torn between Caesar and the best men. You see Pompey not coming down hard on Caesar here and these personal reasons might get at why. Well, he doesn't come down hard on Caesar, but he also kind of gives more to the patricians than he has to give to them. And I feel like that's very much because he is compromising. He's people-pleasing. And sometimes when you try to people-please, you don't please anybody. If Pompey had leaned more into what he felt was right, and maybe this is what he felt right. I mean, we can only look through our lens now and we have the brilliance of hindsight. But trying to keep everyone happy meant that no one in the long run could be happy. Right. And the other issue here is that Pompey may have been feeling threatened by Caesar because Caesar is building up his power base. So anyway, while everyone else was freaking out about Caesar, Pompey just did not see the urgency. When senators gave fear-mongering speeches about Caesar returning from Gaul and turning his army on Rome, Pompey told everyone not to worry because he had only to stamp his feet and armies would rise all over Italy. When someone anxiously asked Pompey, because people were following Pompey around and asking him anxious questions about Caesar all the time. What if Caesar does this? What if Caesar does that? What's our plan for if Caesar does this other thing? What if Caesar looks at me funny? What if Caesar, like, decides he wants to cross into Rome and have an army? What if Caesar, like, burns the bread? I don't know. What if Caesar just, like, does mean things. What if Caesar does mean things like prescriptions? What about that? What are we going to do? What if he's now like a Gallic boogeyman who's got a big mustache and is going to come and kill us all? Right. If we all have to grow out mustaches all of a sudden because Gaul, I don't know, like where the reasoning in that was. Some of us have scraggly mustaches. Like, should we just think about that for a second? I have patchy facial hair at best. Pompey was said to have shrugged and asked, what if my son were to try and beat me with a stick? I don't even know where to go there with that. (laughs) I think the point is that he's really not worried about it because he'd just take the stick away. Because his son is like, what, five? But despite Pompey's calm about the moustaches and the insurrection and Caesar invading and like maybe prescriptions and all these horrible things, everyone else in Rome was on a hair trigger. From what I can tell, Caesar didn't actually want to invade Rome with an army and take over and be a dictator, at least at first. What he wanted 
was not to have to stand trial. He wanted to stay in Gaul until his governorship ran out the clock, and then he wanted to coast to his next job without the threat of prosecution and without the threat of actually being held accountable for anything. That is what Caesar wanted. I mean, it just, it's the epitome of entitlement, isn't it? It just is. Like, he's entitled to these things because he wants them. And he wants to have everything that he thinks he deserves and not have to actually deal with the consequences of the shit things he did to other people. Both modern and ancient sources talk about how Caesar felt like his, in Latin, I'm going to screw this up, octoritas was threatened. It's sort of like a word in Latin that there isn't like a straightforward translation of it in English, but it means sort of like your rank, your dignity. It was a threat to his dignity having to stand trial. Being held accountable, Caesar saw it as beneath his dignity. From Gaul, Caesar tried to tell the people, it's okay. There's no big deal. It's all right. He sent letters to many of the best men stating his willingness to relinquish most of his legions. He wasn't going to give up the 10th, guys. Remember, he loved the 10th. Ride or die with the 10th. He was going to give up most of his legions, give up the governorship of Transalpine Gaul, as long as he could stand for consul in abstantia. I mean, we're not asking for a lot. Just standing for consul when not being there and being able to properly campaign or think about what my slogans are. It's fine. Just do it. Caesar even offered to disband his army entirely if Pompey was willing to do the same. And obviously, Pompey wasn't going to do that because What if Caesar's bluffing? Look, Pompey is not going to disband his army. Caesar knows he's not going to disband his army. This is basically a a junk offer. But he made it so that he could say that he made it. Exactly. He made it so he could look reasonable. Right. None of this was good enough for Cato. Fair enough, Cato. I'm with you here. Letting Caesar just coast to his next job was exactly what Cato didn't want. In 49 BC, he demanded that Caesar dissolve his army immediately or be declared an enemy of the people. And this time... Pompey backed him. The measure passed because Pompey Shark found his teeth. Pompey had started to gum the furniture a little bit, but all of a sudden he realized he didn't have to use his gums. He could just use his teeth because he still has teeth. He still has a bite. He still has power here. And what Caesar's doing really is an overstep. And actually, you might be besties and you might have had a great time talking to each other, but the direction he's going in is not a good one. I mean, sometimes your best friends are the people who have to hold you accountable. Frequently, I text Jenny all the time. She holds me accountable a lot. I do. Then Pompey's Senate whipped into a frenzy, forbade Caesar from standing for consul in abstantia once and for all, and went even further passing an ultimatum that called for, quote, consuls, praetors, and tribunes, and all the proconsuls near the city to ensure the republic comes to no harm, end quote. This was the ultimate decree which could not be vetoed, and it was basically a call to war if Caesar even twitched in the direction of Rome with an army in tow. Now Caesar had been flat out ordered to get rid of his army, return to Rome without a new job lined up, and expose himself to prosecutors and creditors. From there, he'd most likely be stripped of his status, wealth, and position, and possibly exiled or worse, because the Senate was really not Caesar-friendly right now. If he tried to defy these orders, all of Italy was legally mandated to rise against him, including Pompey. Caesar had been backed into a corner. We're told that when he heard the news, Caesar went about his day like it was just a normal Tuesday. He was in Ravenna at the moment, a town in northeastern Italy that was in the province of Cisalpine Gaul. Caesar checked his mail, did not twitch an eyelash over the contents, like whatever, got some utility bills, got a little note from Cicero, it's fine, then went out and watched some gladiators practice and looked over the plans for a gladiator school that he wanted built. This was one of his free time projects. He went to the baths and then to dinner with a group of friends. He left the party early, telling his friends to stick around. He'd be right back. But he wasn't right back. 
This was a fake out. Unbeknownst to everyone, earlier in the day, Caesar had sent a legion, the 13th, you know, his favorite. No, the 10th was its favorite. Okay, well, the 13th, just some randos. <laughs> I don't know why he sent them. I think because the 10th thir- were probably still in Gaul. He wanted to send the 10th, but he was stuck with the 13th, okay? Okay, he was stuck with the 13th. He sent them in disguise to the southern border of his province. And now, as night fell, Caesar snuck out of his own dinner party, borrowed a team of mules from a nearby baker, why, and set out with a small... <laughs> why? Why? Because <laughs> Caesar's mules were very recognizable, so he had to borrow other mules. I guess? I'm just speculating. Anyway, he set out... I'm just going to keep going. He set out with a small, trusted entourage toward the southern border of Cisalpine Gaul in disguise. Suetonius tells us that he got lost in the night and bumbled around until dawn when a local set him on the right path. So when he finally made it to the Rubicon, it's possible he was exhausted and kind of disoriented and needed a nap. And Julius Caesar did not have an ancient world, Google Maps, and also did not think to ask for directions. What I love about this story so much is Caesar is always presented as this like taking action, getting things done, and like sneaking behind enemy lines and doing all this risky stuff and knowing what he's doing at all times and always in control. And then he just gets lost and bumbles around until dawn in like the bushes or something. (laughs) It's awesome. Like sometimes you wander into these little details and it just kind of adds a human element to these people that makes me deeply happy. The Rubicon was a river that marked the boundary between Rome proper and Cisalpine Gaul. Historians aren't sure exactly where the river was in ancient times. There is a modern river in that area today that's named the Rubicon, but we don't actually know if it's the same one because, you know, things change over time. Yeah, we don't know if that's the actual Rubicon that Caesar crossed or if that was a different river. It's just, it's a mystery. Well, it's a mystery because rivers move and get diverted and times change. So here's why the Rubicon was so important. In ancient Rome at this time, governors of provinces were granted imperium, which was a privilege that gave them the right to command their own army in their province, but they weren't supposed to take their armies into Italy. This was seen as a hostile act against their own state. This rule was supposed to prevent another Sulla, even though you see Pompey bringing his own army into Rome all the time to keep order or just to rough up his opponents. And even though for some reason back when Caesar was consul, he was supposed to keep his army on the field of Mars and not blah, blah, blah. So there were lots of times when this got broken for various rules, lawyery reasons. But technically, this was a rule. You weren't supposed to bring your own army that you'd raised in your governorship into Italy proper because it made everybody feel really threatened. And Sulla was not that long ago and nobody wanted to deal with that again. As a governor, technically, the minute you entered Italy proper, you automatically lost your imperium and you could no longer legally lead an army. Commanding an army without imperium was a capital crime. And incidentally, so was obeying a general who didn't have imperium. If you were a rank and file soldier. The punishment for both was an automatic death sentence. Crossing the Rubicon was an irrevocable step for both Caesar and his army. Caesar had done controversial things his first time around as consul, and not everyone liked what he was doing in Gaul. But once he led his army across that river, he'd truly be beyond the pale. All of Italy would rise up against him, was legally mandated to, including Pompey, thanks to that ultimate decree the Senate had just passed. The sources tell us that Caesar agonized over this. He stopped at the river and deliberated a long time, talked it over with his officers, debated the pros and cons. A lot of crazy stories sprang up around this moment in hindsight. Suetonius insists... 
and this is just a wacky story, that a supernatural being appeared, snatched up a trumpet from a soldier, and blowing a mighty blast, strode across the bridge to the opposite bank, this being a not-so-subtle hint from the gods. Plutarch tells us that the night before all this happened, Caesar had a disturbing dream about having sex with his mom. Make of that what you will. I mean, Plutarch just, he existed in a fever dream of his own creation. You just never know what he's going to tell you. Do you think he was, like, taking a lot of flying ointment? I really think he might have been coating himself in flying ointment just to get through the day. Anyway, finally, Caesar gathered his men and made an impassioned speech. He told them about the injustices done against him by his enemies in Rome and the stinging betrayal by Pompey, his erstwhile friend. He explained about the consequences for him, their beloved general, if he had to walk into Rome without a consulship waiting for him and face prosecution, condemnation, exile, and maybe even death, because it's all about Caesar. Caesar also explained to them the sheer contempt that the Senate and Pompey had shown for the tribunes of the plebs, who were supposed to represent the will of the common people, because Pompey had nullified their previous decision to let Caesar stand in absentia for consul. This wasn't about taking over Rome like an evil dictator. This was about their beloved general's octoritas, his honor, and their honor, because the Senate clearly didn't respect the will of the people. And to quote Cucullin, Honor was at stake. I feel like Cucullin has a cold. I feel like Jen has a cold. <laughs> well, Jen has to do this episode, but Cucullin should just take it easy, you know, have some tea with lemon in it, just put his feet up. Thanks, Jenny. I will. Anyway, now that Cucullin's gone off to have some hot lemp sip and just relax a little bit, Caesar explained the severity of what he was about to do and the consequences, and he gave everyone the right to sit this one out if they wanted to. But very few wanted to. By the time Caesar was finished with them, his legionnaires were rattling their shields, demanding justice, ready to act. Honor was at stake! Honor was at stake! Then Caesar marshaled his soldiers and led them across the bridge, declaring famously, quote, the die is cast. Back in Rome, people were shocked. Shocked, I say. A lot of Caesar's enemies in the Senate had expected him to back down after they'd passed their anti-Caesar measures. A few had thought, worst case scenario, that if Caesar did decide to invade, he wouldn't do it right the fuck now because it was January. I mean, the weather was bad. Armies didn't march in winter. It's snowing out there. Have you seen the hail? How are we going to ford that river if it might be frozen, but might not be frozen? We could all fall in. And what about the mules? Will someone think about the mules? I mean, the mules have a thankless job. I actually am not kidding. That's a true fact. It's really true. And I really identify with the mules and the stocky little ponies and the war elephants. All we're doing is thinking about the animals involved and how this affects them. Armies didn't march in winter. They figure Caesar would at least take a few months to build up his strength so that everyone in his army didn't wind up talking like Cucullin, which meant Pompey would also have some time to prepare. But these people clearly didn't know Caesar as well as they thought they did. Everyone in Rome was now in a flappy panic. Caesar had let his dice fly at the Rubicon, and now nobody knew which way those dice would fall. Nobody wanted a repeat of the Sulla situation, and nobody wanted to be caught up on the wrong side of prescriptions. Suddenly, a lot of the virulently anti-Caesar senators realized that actually they were kind of neutral on Caesar. One example of this is Marcellus, Pompey's co-consul, who until recently had a raging anti-Caesar agenda. There's no innuendo in my agenda. He's going to poke you in the face with his agenda. (laughs) 
Ew. Suddenly he was like, oh, geez, I guess there are very fine people on both sides. Problem was, back in Sulla's day, being neutral wouldn't save you either. You were either pro-Sulla or pro-Marius, depending on which one held the city at any point in time, or you were dead. Some people switch sides from Caesar to Pompey. For instance, Labianus? <laughs> Labianus. Labianus? 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 Labi- Labianus. We just have to call him Labianus. We have no choice. His name is Labianus. That's what we're calling him. Get over it. <laughs> one of the people who switched sides from Caesar to Pompey was Labianus, one of Caesar's top commanders in Gaul. He was one of the few who didn't follow Caesar when he crossed the Rubicon. Other people were torn. Rome was a small town, and everyone had friends and family on both sides. Servilia was one example. She'd been involved with Caesar for a long time, but her son Brutus had defected to Pompey, even though he hated Pompey because Pompey had killed his dad. I mean, so much drama. It's a long story. Everybody had a history with everyone else because Rome was basically a small town. It was. Rome was basically Game of Thrones. It was also middle school. Yeah. Possibly at Servilia's request, Caesar gave the order that if Brutus was captured at any point, he was not to be harmed because Caesar's girlfriend wouldn't like it if Caesar killed her kid. Another person with divided loyalties was Cicero. Up until now, Cicero didn't like Caesar, but he could work with Caesar. They were kind of frenemies, but they were on two different sides of the political spectrum. Caesar was a populist and Cicero was a traditionalist. But if Caesar could get Cicero's tacit approval now, that would help him build his own legitimacy. Cicero was very highly respected. So if Cicero was seen to be publicly on Caesar's side, then that would really be a boost to his public image and what he was doing. Caesar wrote to Cicero on his march south, imploring him to join him so he could draw upon his goodwill and assistance. Cicero wrote back a snippy letter asking just what Caesar meant by goodwill and assistance. Caesar gently reminded Cicero that his son-in-law was in his army and mentioning how highly he saw the young man, a very velvet-gloved threat, that one. But Cicero knew exactly how Caesar would use the optics if he went to him willingly, and he didn't want to help lend Caesar legitimacy here. If Caesar wanted Cicero's goodwill and assistance, it would have to be under duress. Still, Cicero was torn. Some of his friends and family were on Caesar's side. For a while, Cicero hid out in his country house, intending to keep a very, very low profile while he figured out what to do. Eventually, after agonizing for a while, Cicero joined Pompey. Prior to this, Pompey had been blasé about the possibility of Caesar invading. But now, senators were calling sarcastically for him to start stomping his feet, and he did, in the opposite direction of Caesar. Pompey ran. And a lot of the best men Ugh. went with him. As Caesar marched south toward Rome, the city emptied out in a hurry. Most of its rich, affluent inhabitants fled. Regular people presumably didn't have as much freedom to leave. Meanwhile, others streamed in from the nearby countryside to take refuge in the city. And the atmosphere in the streets was chaotic. Functional government in Rome was non-existent. But Caesar didn't set his sights on Rome at first. Pompey had fled to a town called Brundisium on the southeastern coast of Italy, right on the boot. And Caesar followed. He wanted to force Pompey into open combat. But this was the last thing Pompey wanted. See, Pompey was operating under the same laws of Imperium that Caesar had just broken, and his army was in Spain. Remember, Pompey was technically governor of Spain? Pompey knew his army couldn't get to him fast enough to stop Caesar, and he also knew that raising more troops in Italy wasn't actually as easy as stopping his feet. Raising and training a new army would take time. His plan was to get to Brindisium, 
hop a boat, and escape to Greece, where he had allies and client kings who owed him big time, and where he could quickly raise an army, because this was basically Pompey's stomping grounds from when he defeated Mithridates. It was now a race against time. Caesar marched south to Brundisium, bypassing Rome for the moment. On the way, his army took town after town, and all of them folded. Nobody wanted a fight. But Caesar wasn't looking for one at the moment. He knew the optics of beating up on Roman citizens were very bad, and he wanted to make even this war look justified. So he didn't let his army pillage. He took supplies but left the citizens alone. When he captured high-ranking Romans, including those who'd been his enemies in the Senate, he let them go freely, even when he knew they were going to join Pompey. About halfway to Brundisium, Caesar took the town of Corfinium, which was being held by Domitius. Domitius, if you'll remember, was the guy who ran for consul against Pompey and Crassus back in 56 BC on a platform of stripping Caesar of his army, and who Pompey and Crassus beat up and intimidated into not standing for election. Upon hearing that Caesar was practically on his doorstep, Domitius promptly drank poison, and then... Hearing a rumor that actually Caesar was being relatively easy on his enemies, bewailed his fate at having decided on the poison option too quickly. His physician told him to just sit back and relax because actually what he'd drunk was a sleeping draught, not actual poison, which I don't know what to say, Domitius. You're super lucky. You're lucky or your physician was going to just hand you over to Caesar to keep his own life, but you'd be sleeping in the process. He just gave you some Ambien and was like, here you go. I was like, don't tweet. <laughs> Stay away from Twitter and you'll be fine. <laughs> When he came to Corfinium, Caesar captured about 50 senators and high-ranking equestrians, including Domitius. And unlike Sulla, he did not immediately round them up in an arena and have them executed. Instead, he gave them all a self-serving speech about how he never wanted this war. He'd been forced into it. He was the wrong party here, and everyone should feel bad for him. Poor, poor Caesar. Poor Caesar. We feel so bad for him. Tiny, tiny violins. Playing in the background of all these speeches. Possibly listening to Caesar's self-aggrandizing but pitying speeches about how you should all feel bad for him made some of these guys wish that Caesar had just put them out of their misery. But we'll never know because Caesar tells us this. This is mostly non-commentary sources. After we get out of Gaul, we have a lot more sources to draw from, including Cicero, who tells us a lot from a different perspective. It's really fun. Ooh. Yeah. Then Caesar let them all go, even letting Domitius keep six million sesterces he'd raided from the Roman treasury to pay his troops, which presumably he was going to use to fight Caesar. I mean, this just tells you that Caesar was absolutely not in the slightest bit threatened by Domitius and his troops. Go ahead, keep your money and pay your troops with them. I literally do not care. You are not going to cause me any trouble. I'm Caesar Shark. Here you see Caesar Shark's trademark mercy come into play. We saw this happening a little bit in Devil's Three-Way when Caesar was the only one who called for due process during the Catiline conspiracy. Caesar's streak of mercy was actually pretty unique in this brutal time period. Plutarch tells us that Caesar himself told friends in Rome that, quote, this was the greatest and sweetest pleasure that he derived from his victory, namely from time to time to save the lives of fellow citizens who had fought against him. But you guys do not be drawn in. Don't forget Gaul. Don't forget Avaracum. Don't forget Elysia. Don't forget Vercingetorix, who is still down in the horrible hole at the moment. Caesar strategically deployed mercy when it was beneficial to him because it was sometimes more valuable to keep someone alive and in your debt than killing them outright. And Caesar had strategic reasons to be merciful on his march through Italy. Caesar didn't want to be another Sulla. What he wanted was what he felt he was entitled to. He wanted his automatic consulship. He wanted not to be prosecuted. He wanted his trial. 
<laughs> why I chose to say it that way. That's exactly how he said it, I'm sure. And he wanted to be one of Rome's leading citizens. He wanted to be Caesar Shark the Great, best of the best men. What he didn't want was to fight a bunch of battles he didn't need to fight with Roman towns and against Roman citizens. And when he let his political enemies go, he wanted them to remember just who they owed their lives to. Because being able to kill you but choosing to spare you, that's real power. Within 60 days, Caesar had taken the entire Italian peninsula on the way to Brindisium practically without bloodshed. But he wouldn't really have won until he'd confronted and defeated Pompey. And Pompey wasn't going to make that easy for him because by the time Caesar got to Brindisium, Pompey had already evacuated to a town called Dyrrhachium in modern-day Albania. The ancients would have considered it Greece, about 97 miles away by sea. It's actually near Corfu, where I visited last summer, funny enough. Me too. Yeah, where we both visited. Caesar chased Pompey to Prindisium, but was unable to stop him evacuating to Dyrrhachium. He also couldn't follow because Pompey had taken all the boats. First round to Pompey. At this point, Caesar still just had one legion with him. Most of his troops were still across the Alps in Gaul. Making the calculation that Pompey wouldn't be invading Italy again anytime soon because he needed time to build up his strength in Greece, Caesar decided to build up his own strength and solidify his power base in Italy. So Caesar turned around and marched back up the boot. His plan was to cross the Alps, scoop up the rest of his army, and poach Pompey's experienced Spanish legions right out from under him. Caesar even had a joke that he, quote, went to fight an army without a general, and later he'd fight, quote, a general without an army. He meant Pompey, which is just kind of a dad joke. Ha ha, Caesar. Really funny. Good job. Caesar marched his army fast up the boot and over the mountains, reaching Pompey's battle-hardened Spanish legions in just 27 days. He defeated those legions with minimal losses, then pulled out some of his trademark clemency, telling the troops they were allowed to depart if they wanted. Almost all of them decided to side with Caesar. Because of course they did, because that's how good he was at convincing people to do what he wanted them to do. I mean, actually, that's a real fact. Like, Caesar was really good good at persuading people to do things. Totally. But not long after that, one of his own legions rebelled. Among their grievances was that Caesar wasn't letting them plunder like they wanted. This was the Ninth Legion. And these guys were kind of the anti-Tenth Legion. They were the black sheep of Caesar's army. While Caesar was capturing Pompey's legions, they'd broken ranks and run after a retreating group of men, nearly spoiling everything. They were already on Caesar's shit list. Caesar had been keeping a tight rein on his army's plundering activities on this one because his opponents, like we've been saying, were Roman citizens. The optics of letting his army plunder Roman cities were very bad. In response to their disobedience, Caesar ordered the 9th Legion decimated. This was an archaic and extreme punishment in the Roman army where every 10th man in a legion would be beaten to death by his fellow legionaries. Some historians believe Caesar actually never meant to carry out this punishment, His purpose was more to shock them back to sense. The legionaries pleaded with him to show mercy, and Caesar hemmed and hawed over this for a bit before finally relenting. Instead of decimating the whole legion, he rounded up 120 ringleaders, had 11 of those beaten to death, and let go a 12th man who was able to prove he actually hadn't been involved. Instead, Caesar had the guy who implicated him executed. Mischief managed. So now, with Pompey's legions and the rest of his own fanatically loyal battle-hardened army in tow, Caesar went back to Rome. His purpose in Rome was twofold. First, he wanted to make sure the government was up and running. Because if there was no legitimate government, more and more people would defect to Pompey for their own security. But even more than that, Caesar wanted to be seen as legitimate. Pompey was backed by all the best men of Rome. He had all the authority and the legitimacy. 
According to the orthodoxy, Caesar was an outlaw, but that's not how he saw himself, and that wasn't how he wanted to be seen. Because Caesar wants to be legit. He wants everyone to just accept that he's the best man of the best men. Caesar Shark the Great. Exactly. He wants what he's entitled to. And he's entitled to everything. Exactly. When he got to Rome, Caesar strolled in all chill and relaxed, embracing all the senators he met like long-lost friends. He delivered a speech to the Senate explaining why he'd done this thing. All he wanted were the rights that had been legally granted to him by the tribunes. He explained explained all about how he was the wronged party here. He unleashed a blistering attack, not on his enemies in Rome, but on anyone who would put Roman citizens to the sword. Caesar also made a big show of sending messages to Pompey that declared his own willingness to disband his army as soon as Pompey did the same. Yeah, he keeps making that offer. I find it just a tad disingenuous. Caesar made this same speech to the Senate and also to the general public. He also showered the populace with grain and promised everyone in Rome 300 sesterces which was a lot of money, I guess. Friendly Caesar, he's your friend. He's your best friend, guys. He's the best friend you never knew you didn't want. Right. <laughs> exactly. The only time the mask slipped was when a tribune named Scipio tried to stop him from raiding the public treasury to pay his troops. Caesar told Scipio, I could kill you faster than I could threaten to kill you. Scipio backed down. Caesar only spent 11 days in Rome. During that time, he got himself unanimously declared dictator. Then he turned around and appointed himself consul. He assigned the role of master of the horse, his right-hand man, to an up-and-comer named Mark Antony. And then he left him in charge of the whole of Italy while Caesar went after Pompey. Meanwhile, across the sea in Dyrrhachium, Pompey had been busy raising troops and gathering supplies. Pompey had deep contacts and allies in this area, including whole client kingdoms. This was his territory from way back during the Mithridatic Wars, the site of his greatest victories. Supplies and troops were flooding into his camp. Pompey saw to the training of new recruits himself and even joined in the vigorous exercises, impressing everyone with his mommy feats. The salmon leap. <laughs> <laughs> Plutarch says, quote, Pompey the Great, who is now 58 years old, nevertheless competed in full armor as a foot soldier and then again as a horseman, drew his sword without trouble while his horse was at a gallop and put it back in its sheath with ease. While in hurling the javelin, he not only displayed accuracy, but also vigor in the length of his cast, which many of the young men could not surpass. Oh, Pompey, you are great. All the phallic imagery. I just, you know, can't even. Pompey had his deep connections and resources in Dracum, but Caesar had his entire battle-hardened, experienced army with him now, as well as Pompey's Spanish legions. Waiting meant giving Pompey even more time to build up his strength. So Caesar couldn't wait. There would never be a better time to take the battle to Pompey. And we will tell you all about that in the next episode. That's it for this week. We'll be back in two weeks with the next episode in this series. In the meantime, you can catch up with us on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan or on Facebook and Instagram at Ancient History Fangirl. And check out our Patreon. We've got some awesome rewards from shout outs in the episode to Movie Nights, which we did our first one as of this taping. We watched Hercules. With The Rock. It was super fun. My dad was there. He was. Captain Dom. And some of our really good friends from Oneshi Press. We had a ball. We massively appreciate the help and it helps us prioritize the podcast in our lives and keep us going and just really helps us out. And we want to say thank you so much to our existing Patreon members. 
So we have some new Patreon members to thank today. And those are Kate the Explorist. She has her own podcast, The Explorist Podcast, on women's history. And she just did an episode for Black History Month about 10 women of color we should all know about. There were some well-known ones like Harriet Tubman and some I didn't know about, including a female Buffalo soldier in the Civil War. And it's super interesting and we highly recommend her podcast. And there's also some other people to thank. Porsche McGovern, Sarah Lincoln, Emma Biggs, and Shelby Caccini. And I'm sorry if I've mispronounced that. We're sorry if we mispronounced anyone's names. We suck at pronouncing words and we have a podcast. But we appreciate your support. And if you want to DM us the correct way to pronounce your name, we will mention you in an upcoming episode pronouncing it correctly. Thank you all so much. We couldn't do what we do without you. It makes a huge difference. It really does. And also, we haven't mentioned this in our podcast enough. We have merch. We do! Yeah! <laughs> we just never mention the merch for some reason. I think just because there's so much to mention we forget about it. But all our merch designs are done by J.L. Draco from Oneshi Press who is an immensely talented artist. Oneshi Press does progressive graphic novels and their stuff is really, really good. We've got mugs, tote bags, t-shirts, leggings, or whatever you want, any kind of thing that you can put graphics on, there is that. And this stuff makes great gifts for the ancient history lover in your life, which might be you because you got to the end of this episode. <laughs> So far, we've got an Amazon design and a really pretty mural of our logo and a Saturnalia design, among others. Check it out from the link on our website at ancienthistoryfangirl.com. And if you want to support us, but you're not in the place to sign up for Patreon, there are other ways you can support us too. Head over to our Ko-Fi account. The link is on our homepage. And kick us a few bucks on a one-time basis. Or leave us a nice review. It means so much to us when you leave us a nice review. And it really helps our algorithms and helps to get our podcast notice. Yeah, it really does help. Thank you guys so much, and we will see you in two weeks. 